Thanks for listening to the Cascade Vineyard Church Podcast. To learn more about our community or the vineyard movement as a whole, feel free to visit our website, cascadevineyard.org. There you'll also find additional teachings, information on our various ministries, and other resources for further developing your faith. We'd love to have you join us for worship. Enjoy this message. I wanted to uh, welcome, first of all, uh, I, mean, I agree with Daphne, it's just good to be here, be together, uh, good to see you guys, I'm always thankful, I'm just thankful that anybody shows up, that's really uh, it. Two things I wanted to to, to uh, talk about real quickly before we get into the message this morning. First is this, uh, if you're new with us this morning, if you're a guest here, thanks for being here, welcome. I wanted to mention, we do have a gift for you, if you, if you would so desire, in the back of the room, before you leave today, stop back, and I'll be there, or somebody will be there. We have this beautiful Cascade Vineyard coffee mug. I know. And it was designed, my daughter-in-law drew our logo. Isn't that wonderful? And uh, inside is a download card for Vineyard Music. I believe this card gets you five songs. And so typically they rotate, and it's some of the newer releases and so forth from Vineyard Music. So that's a, it's a nice little way to say thanks for stopping by today. Uh, so pick that up. Second thing is this, uh, on a more serious note, la- last week, uh, in the context of, of the sermon, I referenced uh, the shooting that had taken place in New York, uh, along with, I suppose, the rest of the world at that moment had no idea that this week that another event of that nature would take place. And like so many of you, I- I'm in a just uh, devastated, heartbroken, sad uh, confused, uh, all of the above. So, you know, in the last few days, a um, lot of political wrangling, a lot of name calling and finger pointing, and I do not want to enter into any of that. Um, but I did want to uh, just reference this and pray, ask us to pray for a moment. I, uh, I process my thoughts and feelings a lot just by writing. I write, and that helps me to to kind of uh, process and think through, you know, what's really going on inside. I'm going to share with you something I wrote earlier this week regarding this. Um, and then if we could just take a minute or two, quietly, just to yourself, pray. If you feel led to, to pray out loud, you can do so. Otherwise, just pray to yourself. And then after a minute or so, I'll, I'll bring us back and we'll get into today's message. But first, Second um, Chronicles 7.14. Uh, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. As I reflect on this verse today, as I have so often in the face of tragedy in the past, it strikes me that the key is humility. God speaks to his people in a time of great need and makes it clear that he requires two things of them, humility and prayer. We've heard it said over the past few days that thoughts and prayers are not enough. I agree. Before we, the people of God, pray, we first need to humble ourselves to be willing to lay aside our opinions, the belief that we are right, that we have the answers, that we know what this country needs and say we may not be right. The problems are deep and complex, and we don't know what to do. Simply put, to humble ourselves. 
to acknowledge that our best efforts have not worked, that we are divided and we are broken, that we are more concerned about our rights than the beauty of life. My heart breaks tonight for the parents, the grandparents, the sisters and brothers of those lost in Texas, in New York, and in so many other places. I don't have any answers. I know to do only three things, to mourn with those who mourn, to humble myself before God, and to pray. Lord, we know that by your Spirit, as we enter into the pain uh, of others, and we mourn with those who mourn, that there is a spiritual reality that takes place, and a strength that comes uh, in in just that connection. So would you just grant grace to those uh, that are in mourning today, and allow us the grace to mourn along with them. Um, Would you cause your peace, your grace, your healing to come upon uh, families and loved ones of those who have been lost, as well as, uh, as the scripture says, to heal our land. Your name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, Shifting gears now. In the year uh, 591, Pope Gregory I preached a, uh, an Easter Sunday sermon. Now, uh, so, so 591, that, that was a long time, 1,400 years ahead of radio, television, or I suppose what the kids today like to call the interweb. Um, but uh, being Pope and all, Gregory had a fairly significant audience for his Easter morning message, and uh, later handwritten copies uh, of his message were circulated for those who could not be in attendance that day. Um, Those of you that know me know I'm not anti-Catholic in any way, shape, or form, but I have to say this, that His Holiness uh, at that particular moment either had a flair for literary license or just didn't know Scripture very well. Uh, In his sermon... Uh, Pope Gregory conflated not two, but three people. Somehow, in the context of his sermon, Mary of Bethany, who we looked at a few weeks ago along with her sister Martha, uh, Mary of Bethany, an unnamed sinful woman that is referenced in Luke chapter 7, and Mary Magdalene, all became the same person. And that's how it starts. Somebody says something, and then somebody else repeats that something, and they add their own little twist to it, and then it gets passed on and on and down the line. The next thing you know, Mary Magdalene is a sex worker, which is something that has absolutely no basis in Scripture. However, that thought process has been handed down all through history up until modern times, and in recent years... um, Modern renditions have not helped. Uh, Martin Scorsese, in his film, The Last Temptation of Christ, depicts Mary Magdalene as both a sex worker and as being married to Jesus. Uh, Dan Brown in The Da Vinci Code, movie slash uh, books slash movie, also depicts Mary as a sex worker who was at one point married to Jesus. Uh, Something else that has, uh, again, no biblical basis whatsoever. So um, this morning, if you have not been with us, 
We've been in a series, Women in the Word, for a few weeks now. We're going to conclude that today. This is the last, uh, last message in that st- series. And we're going to take a look at what, who I think is one of the more misunderstood and misrepresented people in Scripture. And with that, we will try to answer the burning question. If you would go to the next slide for me. Oh, you can't see the text very well. But the title of today's sermon is, Who Was Mary Magdalene? Let's take a look at her file real quick. We've had a file on each of our subjects. Uh, you may not be aware of this. I, I was not. Mary is referenced in Scripture more often than most of the disciples. She was very likely wealthy. That comes from a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago where she was one of a few women who out of their own pocket supported the ministry of Jesus for some time. She was delivered of seven demons. She was deeply devoted to Jesus She was the first person that Jesus appeared to uh, post-resurrection. As I mentioned, she's historically been characterized uh, inaccurately. She is called, though, by uh, many commentators and uh, scholars, uh, an apostle to the apostles. So uh, with that, I want to just start with Mary's name. So um, you, you wouldn't take, you don't have to be a genius to figure this out. Uh, there are a number of Marys in the scripture. Mary was the most common female name in the ancient Near East. Uh, a lot of Marys. And so very often in cases like that, a person is given a designation. It's not their last name. It's really a reference of where they're from. So you have Jesus of Nazareth or Simon the Cyrene. And that's given just to help distinguish that person from other people of the same name. So Mary's name is not Mary Magdalene. She's actually Mary from Magdala. Magdala was a uh, sleepy little fishing village, uh, kind of uh, west shore of the Sea of Galilee, just north of Tiberias. So if you're ever in the area, stop by. Mary is um, referenced uh, multiple times by all four of the gospel writers, four, not three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Interesting, though, never by Paul or Peter. Um, One reason for that, now, again, this is according to early commentators, some early commentators believe that there may have been some professional jealousy between Peter and Mary. And that um, Peter was, you know, a little put off by Jesus giving attention to Mary over and against attention to him. And I can kind of see that. You know, you put yourself in the mind of Peter, think about Peter, who he was, you know, and he's over there steaming, you know, what's up with the girl? Mary, Mary, Mary. Jesus always talking to Mary. So, you know, maybe Peter thought that and he never mentioned her. I don't know why Paul didn't, but both Mark and Luke tell us that uh, Mary was delivered from seven demons. Which, you know, something you don't hear a lot about today, okay? Um, And I think there's multiple reasons for that. One is it's really just not casual dinner conversation. You know what I mean? You move into a new house or whatever, meet your neighbors, they invite you over for barbecue. Hey, you know, tell us about yourself. Well, you know, I used to have a bunch of demons, but I don't anymore. It's all good. We're good now. So don't worry about that. I mean, we don't, nobody's going to say that, right? You just, it doesn't come up in conversation. Um, 
Another reason, though, I think is just it's a little outside of the box. It's a little weird, and it's not very postmodern. Our culture today likes uh, statistics. We like numbers. We like to know things and have things, you know, e- evenly just placed in there where they go. And it doesn't fit like that. Um, some of us who have had experience in deliverance and seen people set free from demonic oppression in their life can tell you that it's a profoundly beautiful thing. Profoundly beautiful thing. To see people set free from oppression that can uh, create all kinds of conditions in the course of a person's life. Uh, everything from antisocial behavior, uh, paranoia, unnatural fears, uh, self-harm, addiction. It goes on and on. The list of potential consequences of demonic oppression in a person's life are great. And, and so, so, again, just being somebody that has, uh, you know, been involved in, in that process, seeing that, um, it, this is my conviction. I'll just, I, I, I am of the conviction that today there are any number of people uh, who are either uh, institutionalized or possibly medicated or both that are actually suffering from demonic oppression. Now, that is not to say, just qualifier, that all mental illness or all Psychological condition is demonic. I'm a centrist on this issue. So I am not a demon behind every bush Pentecostal. Thank you very much. Um, But somewhere in the middle, I realize that it is, it it, it is a real issue. I understand this, or let me say, I, I guess I believe this is my conviction that our human person is complex and integrated and that our emotional spiritual, mental, physical person is all connected. They're not separate from one another. So consequently, and we know this about illnesses of different kinds that can have an effect on different aspects of our being. I believe that as those things are intertwined, the spiritual is part of that process, not just you know, physical conditions can cause mental or emotional problems. Mental or emotional problems can cause physical conditions. And I would equate spirituality with that same process that our spirit realm, our spirit person can cause those other things. Beyond that, I, I realize this. And people today experience abuse and neglect and other forms of trauma in the course of their life. Um, sin against them. They, they also quite possibly have developed patterns of sin in their own life. And, and those things can open the door to demonic influence in a person's being, in a person's life. So that's my sermon within a sermon, but really we'll, uh, it's for another day. So maybe at some point we'll pursue that, but I want to get back to Mary, thank you for indulging me for a few minutes there. Um, we don't know anything about Mary's life prior to uh, her deliverance. Nothing is mentioned of her prior to that. And again, maybe that's a good thing. You know, I don't, I, again, I don't know. Speculation on my part, I'm confident that por- at least part of her life may have been difficult. There, it may have been challenging. Um, tradition, this is not biblical, but uh, again, more than one early commentator, early writer 
indicates that Mary was a very beautiful woman. So I ask myself, what might the life of a young, single, beautiful woman in the first century ancient Near East patriarchal culture have looked like and what might have led to her demonization? And you can just fill in the blanks. Post-deliverance, we know this about Mary, that she was deeply devoted to Jesus. Uh, She's with Jesus pretty much everywhere he goes. She's just always there. She's always there. I, I, I am fairly confident, again, I'm filling in some blanks and speculating a little bit, but I'm fairly confident Mary had never, well, I mean, I can be sure of it, actually, regardless. She'd never met a man quite like Jesus. Somebody who loved her purely and who loved her for who she was and, and wanted nothing in return. It just just was willing to extend peace, extend forgiveness, extend all the blessing that we know of the kingdom of God in, into her life and didn't want anything back. Um, I want to look at two passages this morning. Uh, they're long, but I'm going to read them because I, I think the context is important and I want us to really get a hold of this. So they're both from the Gospel of John. The first is in chapter 19 and it begins... Um, you know, I think it's verse one. I'm not sure. I forgot to write it down, but um, John 19. Yeah, you've got it. Good. Thanks. Uh, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no charge, no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted we have a law. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. You refuse to speak to me. Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat in a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest asked. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene.
So what do you suppose was going on in Mary's mind as this is taking place? First, Jesus is being mocked and ridiculed and slapped in the face. But then it gets worse. He's carrying his own cross, and the crowds are stirred up in a frenzy, and that whole crowd dynamic takes place. Crucify him, crucify him. It's growing and growing, and she's watching this one person who loved her, the one person who was kind to her and cared for her, being nailed to a cross. And she's got to be overwhelmed with grief and asking the question, why is this happening? You know, Mary's life had been kind of uh, captured in darkness. Jesus had set her free, and now she's watching the person that set her free be captured by that same darkness. Uh, Not a good moment in her life. Add to that, and we've all had this feeling before, there was absolutely nothing she could do. There's nothing she could do to stop this. But here's the thing. She was there. She was there. John tells us that the authorities had put out word that anybody who is with Jesus is to be reported. The disciples were gone. The men fled. Macho Man Peter is in hiding. The sons of thunder are nowhere to be found. But the women are there at the cross. Mary is there. The world is crashing in around them. Admittedly, the followers of Jesus had to be in a place of just complete confusion. This is not what we had anticipated. But Mary is there. Mary is there. And three days later at the tomb of Jesus, Mary is still there. John 20, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and she said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body has been and at the head, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? And thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go and say to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. She had told them these things that he had said to her. Uh, You know, who's the first person 
Jesus talks to when he is resurrected. Not Peter, and not the self-proclaimed disciple that Jesus loved. Mary, Mary of Magdala. Jesus had an agenda. Uh, There was work to be done. Significant work to be done. And he had significant information that he had to pass on to his disciples for them to continue his ministry. This was a very, very important time. But before any of that could take place, the first thing Jesus does is spend a quiet moment with his friend Mary. And that is why in 1969, Pope Paul VI corrected the mistake that Gregory I had made 1,400 years prior. Had to be bugging him. I'm going to set the record straight. And, and that is why Mary of Magdala is remembered in some theological circles as the apostle to the apostles. That is why Mary is revered as a saint. We don't have saints in the vineyard, you know, but Mary is a saint in the Catholic tradition, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, and among our friends, the Lutherans. So I, I, I might put in a note to whoever will read it and say, I think we need some saints in the vineyard. So, you know, who was Mary Magdalene? She was loyal. She was faithful. She was steadfast. She was fearless. She was and has been misunderstood and misrepresented. But above all, Mary Magdalene was a friend of Jesus. That's who she was. How do, we, how do I want to remember her when I think of Mary Magdalene? I want to think she was a friend to Jesus. Why don't we stand and um, Stephen, would you come up? Thanks, man. We'll take a minute and just pray together. If you would like prayer today, I would encourage you uh, to maybe just grab someone near you and ask them to pray for you, pray with you as we uh, get ready to close. You know, we, we want to give opportunity for people to receive prayer here uh, for whatever's going on in your life. And, you know, there's no, uh, no, no prayer request too big, none too small. If you're sick or someone in your family is sick and you need healing, we'd love to pray for you. If you had a bad week, got mad at your boss, whatever, we'd love to pray for you for that. Uh, it doesn't matter, anything at all. Just turn and, and grab somebody and uh, ask them to pray for you. But I'll, I'll close and then we'll officially be done. Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to sow into what God is doing through Cascade Vineyard, we always welcome your prayers for our church body, our communities, and our leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially, please visit cascadevineyard.org give.